Today, we are going to see the end of Stephen's story, but I want you to know it's not the end of Stephen's impact. In fact, we'll see the impact that Stephen has throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And, uh, but today, we're coming to the very end. Last week, we focused on the sermon that he gave. Today, we're going to look at the reaction to it. So we're going to pick it up in verse 54 of chapter 7. And it says, when they, the they being the religious leaders, heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just a wonderful time of worship. A wonderful time of lifting up our voices and declaring that you are our God. And now as we turn our attention to worship you in the study of your word, God, we pray that you would just be in this time. I pray that you would use this time to maybe change our perspective, that you would use this time to encourage, to uplift, and Lord, that you would be magnified in this time that we spend together now, in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Years ago, Steve Martin appeared on the David Letterman show. And uh, anybody seen David Letterman lately? He kind of looks like Santa Claus, uh, big, big white beard. But um, Steve Martin was on the, the David Letterman show, and he sang this song that he called, Atheists Don't Have No Songs. And this is how it went said, Christians have their hymns and pages, Hava Nigel for the Jews, Baptists have the rock of ages, but atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune, born again sing He is Risen, but no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have one rule. The he is always in lowercase. Now, that was meant to be funny, but it it really hit on a very important truth that when it comes to our outlook on life and hope, there's a huge contrast between people who have faith in Jesus and those who don't have faith in Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we have seen a similar contrast between the followers of Jesus Christ who have been impacted by his resurrection from the dead and the religious community who refused to believe that the resurrection was true. And this contrast is on display big time in the passage that we're looking at today. Now, let me let me catch you up. So we were introduced to Stephen back in 
chapter 6. He was one of those seven deacons that were first chosen to help with the distribution of the food. And God had a special hand on him and kind of raised Stephen up. And he began to preach and be used by God. And God had a specific real emphasis or impact that he wanted Stephen to make on a particular person. So we saw how Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin and he gives this message. And Tyler did an amazing job last week in going through uh, that message in chapter 7. 53 verses and 45 minutes. I mean, that's quite a feat, um, to be honest with you. And uh, when I knew I wasn't going to be able to preach that last week because I was gone all week, I thought... Who, who talks the fastest amongst our staff? <laughs> Tyler, he's the guy. He'll be able to pull this off. You know? so, so he was able to do that. And we saw that as they were seeking to put Stephen on trial, that Stephen flipped the script on them and put the religious leaders on trial. And we saw that in verse uh, 51, where it was kind of the summary, the climax of his message, where he said this, read it, follow along as I read, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did, you, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, that would be the Messiah, of whom you have now become the betrayers and the murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, that was the summary, the climax of Stephen's sermon, where he flipped the script on these religious leaders in the same way that Peter did in his messages by basically telling them that you guys, you killed the Messiah. But if you were here last week, you know that Tyler left us hanging. Because he ended the, the message with the end of the sermon, but we didn't get to see the reaction to the sermon. And he left us hanging. If it was a TV show, it would have been a cliffhanger or, you know, to be continued would have came up. And, but he left us hanging by design. I asked him to do that. So this morning, we could focus in on the reaction um, to his sermon. And so Stephen calls these guys, he says to them that they were stiff-necked in heart and ears. And you might think, guy, that seems harsh for him to say that. That seems kind of mean, but it was true. These religious leaders, they were stiff-necked and hard-hearted in their refusal to believe the irrefutable evidence that Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was alive, that he was the Messiah, and he was the only way to be saved. And so what we have before us in verses 54 through 60 today is this incredible and extreme contrast that we see between Stephen and these religious leaders. We see in this passage that Stephen gets stoned to death. He's the first martyr in the early church. But I want you to note this. The real victim in this passage is not Stephen. He's no victim at all. In fact, he wins. He dies, yes, but he dies the victor. The religious mob that killed Stephen, they live, but they live as the losers. And the mob, this religious mob, they're the tragedy in this story. But here's what I want you to catch today. Listen, 
This is, this is the big idea. This is very, very crucial, is that what we see in Stephen is directly connected to the statement that he makes in verse 56 about seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God in the heavens. And this is really the the big idea. This is where we're headed in our message today is where and how you see Jesus is going to play a significant role in the way you approach life. And it's going to play a significant role in the way that you deal with life's difficulties. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend the first part of our time today in looking at this contrast that we see between Stephen and these religious leaders. And there's four things I want to point out. And then I want to spend the rest of our time in considering what does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of God today, that that's where he's at, at the right hand of God in glory. So that's going to be kind of our focus today as we go through this passage. Does that sound good to you guys? All right, so if you're taking notes, contrast number one is this. Stephen is seen here as being full of the Holy Spirit, whereas the religious leaders are full of anger and wrath. We read in verse 54 that it says that when they heard these things, and I think that means that Stephen doesn't even get a chance to finish his sermon, that they interrupt him in the midst of it. Because these religious leaders, they prided themselves in their obedience to God and their worship of God. They loved the law. They loved the prophets. And Stephen has just taken them through this, you know, Old Testament history lesson. But in the midst of it, Stephen exposes their hypocrisy. And it says, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means that their heart was cut in half. The idea in that phrase is that they were radically convicted. They were cut to the heart, and it says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They begin to grind their teeth. This is a picture of rage mixed with frustration. You know, when I was younger... When I was a kid, my dad sometimes would do this. He would get this look that when he'd get mad, he would do this with his teeth and his lip would kind of curl up. And when he looked at you like that, you knew you were in trouble, all right? And that's what's happening here. These guys are grinding at their teeth like, I can't believe, you know, who this guy is. And what's really, really interesting about this is that we're told over and over again in the New Testament, in fact, Jesus said this several times, that hell would be a place where there would be weeping. It would be full of people who are weeping and gnashing their teeth. Weeping, I believe, because of their, the realization of their own foolishness and not believing the gospel and not believing in Jesus. And so they're going to spend eternity weeping, crying in sorrow because they missed out on salvation and then gnashing their teeth, not because they're mad at God, but because they're mad at themselves. In fact, here's a little side note. Did you know that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? Do you realize that? A lot of people don't realize that. Why, why would he do that? Why would he speak so much about hell? Here's why. Because Jesus knows that hell is a real place and that real people go there. 
And he doesn't want anybody to go there. That's why he left heaven and came to this earth so that we could be rescued from that, that he went to the cross to pay the price for our sins and he rose again. We're gonna celebrate this. We celebrate it all the time, but we're gonna celebrate it big time on, uh, at the park, you know, in the amphitheater on Easter. But Jesus, he, he knew hell's real and I don't want anybody to go there. And so he spoke a lot about it. And it's interesting that, that these guys, it's like hellish. They're gnashing their teeth in anger at Stephen, even though their hearts were convicted by his words. And this is really a revelation of how far these men were really from knowing God. So the first contrast we see here is that they were full of anger. Stephen's full of the Holy Spirit. Here's contrast number two. It's spiritual blindness versus spiritual sight. They can't see anything. Stephen sees everything. The situation is growing more and more intense, and Stephen can see it. He can see the tension is escalating as they begin to grind their teeth. Stephen can see the fury that is coming, but I want you to notice here what he does. Look at verse 55. It says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. What does he do? He looks up. And I really think this is a word from the Lord for some of us here today. You see, the first thing that you want to do in a tough situation is get your eyes off of the situation. That's the problem that so many of us struggle with all the time is that our vision, our focus is so much on the horizontal and there's so much that's going on in the horizontal that is crazy and confusing and difficult and challenging. And what we need to do is to learn how to to do what Stephen is to get our eyes off of the horizontal and to look up, to get vertical, to look up and to see the Lord. This is exactly what Stephen does here. He being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed, he looked up into heaven, and what does he see? He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And guys, this is huge. This is huge. Because one of the biggest things that we struggle with today in life, with our eyesight, and even what I would call our heart sight, is that we're constantly directing our gaze on the horizontal things around us. But when we look up and we see the Lord in the midst of the challenges that are around us, those challenges that can seem like mountains become molehills when we see them in light of the greatness of Jesus, the glory and the majesty of our God. So Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus in the place of glory at the right hand of the Father. And he says there in verse 56, look, like, check this out. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is so interesting because this is exactly what Jesus said to this exact group of religious leaders during his trial. And this was really the final straw and why they killed him. We read this in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 61, it says, and again, the high priest asked him, that being Jesus, 
saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him, deserving of death. This is what Jesus says that gets them all worked up. And then Stephen here says, you know what I see? You know what I'm seeing, guys? I see Jesus. And he's standing there at the right hand of the Father. No wonder it says in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. I mean, it's like they put their hand over their ears and they ran at him with one accord. You see, Stephen hit the nail on the head. You see, they had to kill Stephen. Or they had to admit that they were wrong in killing Jesus. And so we see here, contrast number two, that of spiritual sight versus spiritual blindness. And that leads really to contrast number three between death and life. Notice verse 58, it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes, that would be their coats, at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here's the thing. They drag Stephen out of the city, they throw him down, they start stoning him with rocks, and they thought that they were killing him, but in reality, they were just giving him his entrance into glory. Verse 59 says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Death satisfied these religious leaders. They wanted death, but for Stephen, it wasn't death. It was his entrance into real life. It was his entrance into glory. Because Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you are one of my disciples, if you are following me, you're not going to die. Because the real you, your spirit, is going to live forever. Paul said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. You know, when a believer in Jesus dies, we say that they passed. And that's really a great phrase. They passed. Because that's exactly what they're doing. They're passing from this life into the next. Into glory. Into God's presence. It's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And it's a rhetorical question. There is no sting in death. There is no victory uh, for the, of the grave for the believer in Jesus Christ. Because we leave this place on, on planet Earth. We breathe our last breath here and our next breath in glory. We pass from here into God's presence. It's why, yeah, you can say hallelujah. Uh, it's why Peter, Peter says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we celebrate Easter all the time, right? It's because it's the whole thing of what, what, we're ta- what our thing is all about as believers. We've been born again to a living hope, a hope that lives through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. It's why I like to say all the time, Jesus beat death so that death wouldn't have to beat us. We don't fear death. You know, my dad passed in February of 2020. 
And when he was in the, the hospital for the last time, and they basically were telling him that there was nothing else that they could do for him, and they were going to send him you know, home, and he was going to go on hospice. And, and uh, my dad would tell every single doctor and every single nurse that came into his room uh, there at Palomar Hospital, he, he would say, you know, <clears throat> I'm not afraid to die. I'm actually looking forward to it. <laughs> every single one of them. And when we were having that final meeting with the doctor, and the doctor had our whole family together, he says to my dad, he says, Tony, you are the most remarkable man I've ever met. I've never met somebody like you. And and this guy was not a Christian. He was not a believer. But my dad had made such an impression upon him because my dad wasn't afraid to die. Like he said, he was looking forward to it. You know, he's looking forward to, you know, he didn't want to leave us. He didn't want to leave my mom, but he was so ready to go to heaven and see Jesus and get his new body because his old body had been broken down for quite some time. And so we see this contrast with Stephen between death and life, spiritual blindness, spiritual sight, full of anger versus being full of the Holy Spirit. And finally, number four, we see a contrast between hate and love. The religious leaders, they are this hating mob. They hated Stephen so much because they hated Jesus. And they were venting such venom and fury and their hate is seen in just the the way that they stoned him. don't, don't take for granted. Don't miss this when it says they took off their coats. You know what they were doing? They were taking off their coats so that they could really wind up and lay into him. It's like when you go to the fair and there's one of those little booths where you can throw the baseballs at the bowling pins, you know, and win that cheap little stuffed animal for one of your kids. Well, this is what, what you do. You take your coat off, right? I need to be able to really wind up and throw this thing. That's what they're doing. They're winding up to throw at him. In the ESV, it says that, that as they were stoning him, that means that the rocks just kept coming. They just kept flying. It wasn't just one. It was one after another after another. It's the image of hatred in the extreme. But in contrast to that, we see another image of extreme love. As Stephen falls down on his knees, and in verse 60, he prays, notice. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Wow. Who does that remind you of? It's exactly what Jesus does on the cross, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But here's what's interesting. Stephen wasn't at the cross. He didn't hear Jesus say that. Even though I'm sure the story had been passed down, you know, for years amongst the church of of Jesus' reaction. But why why does Stephen respond in this way? Don't miss this. It's because Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God in Stephen is superseding the hate of these religious leaders with the love of God. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? God has poured his love into you through his Holy Spirit. And he poured his love into us so that his love could be poured out of us. And so the love and grace of God is being poured out in this moment through Stephen as he cries out, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. 
And I believe it was those exact words that haunted this young man that we read about here named Saul of Tarsus. As they put their coats down at his feet, Saul of Tarsus would become after this. We'll read about him in chapter 9. He becomes this religious zealot. He was a Pharisee. And he was highly respected amongst the religious community. And he decides that he is going to single-handedly just put an end to these followers of Jesus. And so armed with authority from the religious community, he goes out into cities and he's taking, you know, fathers and putting them in jail. And he's having Christians killed. And he's on a rampage. And later on, he'll say he did it in ignorance because he really thought that he was, you know, trying to protect Judaism. But on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, we'll see this. Saul of Tarsus is met by a risen Jesus Christ. He hears a voice. He he sees a, a light brighter, he says, than the sun at noonday. He falls to the ground and he hears. It blinds him. The light blinds him. And he hears Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? And we've noted how a goad was a sharp stick that they would use to poke a donkey to get it to move in the right direction. And it speaks, it's a symbol of conviction that the, the Holy Spirit was pricking at Saul's heart. And I think the thing that was convicting him was Stephen's sermon and Stephen's prayer and the love that he's seeing in the midst of, of this hatred that it just haunted him. And so we see this amazing contrast between Stephen and these religious leaders. And in our series, we've been talking about how Jesus wants us to be his church, his representatives in this broken world. And and I think that, that what we're seeing in Stephen is exactly what God is wanting to produce in our lives In this world around us, as it gets more darker and more hostile to the things of God, God wants to shine in us the same way that he's shining through Stephen. But here's the thing. We can read this account of Stephen and see this remarkable contrast. And we can think that Stephen is just one incredible, special guy. We can think that he is one of a kind. And I will say this, I do think that Stephen was, had a special anointing on his life. But I want to just say, Stephen, he's a regular guy, just like you and I. He's a regular dude. He was not superhuman. He's a regular guy, full of the Holy Spirit, just trying to follow Jesus. But here's what I want you to see today. Here's the big thing is that Stephen's reaction was directly connected to his relationship with Jesus and his view of Jesus and where he saw Jesus. And where does he see Jesus? He sees Jesus in glory at the right hand of the Father. In other words, he sees Jesus risen and alive and reigning there in heaven. And this is significant. It's significant that we realize That's where Jesus is. You know, the Bible tells us over 23 times in the New Testament that Jesus right now, where he is right now, is he's at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. 
23 times the Bible tells us that. In fact, this is the only time that it tells us that Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. And why, why is this case? Why is Jesus standing in, in this story? We really don't know the answer to that, but I'll give you a couple of suggestions. I think Jesus was giving Stephen a standing O. Like he's standing up and going, well done. Well done. Man, I love that guy. Well done. As he's ready to receive him. This is what the Bible says, that that when we enter into glory, that Jesus says, well done, welcome, well done, my good and faithful servant. It makes me wonder if every single time a believer enters into glory, if Jesus doesn't stand to welcome us. I mean, think about this. The Bible says that we are his bride. He's the bridegroom. And I've done a lot of weddings here in this uh, church and in other churches. And every single time when the bride is walking down the aisle, where's the bridegroom? He's usually standing right in front of the first chair, first pew, waiting to receive his bride, waiting to be joined. And wouldn't it be weird if, if like the, the bridegroom was like sprawled out on the stairs, you know? You're like, what is he doing? You know, he's like chilling, kicking back. Like, no, he's waiting and anticipating. It's like a sign of honor. It's a sign of, of beauty. It's a sign of, oh, I can't wait for you to get here. And I think this is what it's displaying. Jesus is saying, I've been waiting for you, Stephen. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome, welcome into my presence. But I want us to talk for a few minutes here as we close out our time together about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. And I think it's very significant that we realize that it says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes this beautiful case in Scripture for Jesus being our high priest. He says this in Romans chapter 8, For we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's saying, this is Jesus. This is where he's at. He's our high priest. And it's interesting. I wish I had more time to go into this. But in in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews is indicting those he's writing to and saying, you know, I'd really like to move on into talking about things that are, that are a little bit more for mature believers. But because of your unbelief and your lack of applying, I got to go back to the elementary things. But if I could, and he says, and I'm going to try to move forward and talk about the, the more mature things, what he spends the next three chapters talking about is how Jesus, don't miss this, is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what that means is that this guy Melchizedek was a very unique person in Bible in that he was a king and a priest. Only person in scripture that holds those two offices except for Jesus. And most commentators believe that they were one in the same, but I don't have time to get into all that. So anyway... But Jesus, he said, this is the mature thing, is when you realize that Jesus is your kingly high priest. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says, and he offered one sacrifice for sins 
or after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, sanctified or set apart. Right? If he was saying Jesus is our high priest and he's seated. Now, that's significant because the high priests in the Old Testament, when they were in the temple, they never sat down. Why? Because their work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the people. There was always work to do. But Jesus, our high priest, he is seated. Why? Because he offered one sacrifice himself. Once for all. For all of humanity, for everyone who would put their faith in him. So one sacrifice for all. It was good enough to cover the sins of all of humanity. And it was offered once and for all. Meaning there was, never, there was no need for any other sacrifices to ever be offered again. Because when Jesus was on the cross, I tell you this all the time. What did he cry out? It is what? Finished. You can say it louder than that. What did he cry out? Finished. It's done in other words. The work of redemption is complete. I finished it. I did what was required in order for you to be made right with God. It's finished. It's done. You don't have to strive to earn God's favor. You just need to believe that you have it because you are in me and my blood covers you. You know, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he's talking about how we're running in a race as believers. And he says this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, there it is again, at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, hey, we're in this race and we need to run with endurance. Because Jesus, he endured the cross and the shame for us. Now, when we hear that word endure, we often think of somebody just barely making it, barely getting by. You know, someone might say, you know, I endured that, that root canal at the dentist this week. It was so hard. Or I endured that visit for my mother-in-law last weekend. I mean, it was so hard, you know. That's not the idea. Jesus didn't barely make it on the cross. He looked like it, beaten, stripped, naked, beaten to a pulp. But that word endured in the Greek, it's the word hupomeneo. In fact, everybody, let's say that, hupomeneo. Okay, you just learned some Greek. So tomorrow at work, you say, I learned some Greek at church tomorrow or yesterday. You want to hear it? And and here's your opportunity to tell them this, okay? I I dare you. Some some will go, oh, I'd love to hear what, what you learned about Greek. And then you, this is your moment, okay? Hupomeneo doesn't mean to endure in the sense of barely make. It means to conquer. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He looked stripped. He looked weak. He looked defeated. But in the spiritual realm, he's defeating sin. He's defeating Satan. He's defeating death. He's defeating shame. He was conquering. And the writer of Hebrews says, we're to run our race with endurance because Jesus conquered for us. And that's why Paul would go on to say that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's what it means to us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. His work is finished. He conquered and his conquering power is made available to all of us. He's seated at the right hand. 
You know, the right hand was also the place of honor, place of lordship, place of kingship. So we read in Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's telling us that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That The Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Because all humanity is one day going to bow before Jesus and declare him to be Lord. Now hopefully you've done that already in your heart now. But you can wait. You can say, you know, I don't, I don't, think, I don't know if I believe yet. You're going to bow one day, but it'll be too late. You see, you can't be neutral about Jesus. A lot of people think that. Well, I like Jesus, but I'm not one of those born again. So I'm not one of those Christians. No, Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. You can't be neutral. You're either with me, you're either following me, or you're my enemy in other words. And so Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But, but he, at the right hand of God, in that place of honor, that place of lordship, that place of kingdom, he's not just chilling, waiting for, you know, the second coming. No. Because the right hand is also a place of power. We're told in Psalm 89, verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. It's the place of power. It's the place of strength. I love what the Bible teacher and commentator Mike Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, God's power not only surpasses our power of expression, it surpasses our power of comprehension. Take all the dictionaries of the world, exhaust all the vocabularies, and when you have added them all together, you have still not begun to describe the greatness of God's and that power at the right hand of God, that power, don't miss this, is in Jesus. We're told in Psalm 110 verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He's coming. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to shatter the kings. Psalm 63 verse 8 says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And don't miss this. I believe that all those references to the right hand of God are a reference to Jesus. As he's sitting there at the right hand of God, it's a reference to who he is and what he is able to do in our lives, that his arm is mighty, his strength is unsurpassed, his ability to uphold us is greater than anything that this world can throw at us. The strength of Jesus was upholding Stephen in this moment. And so this is why I said, your view of Jesus is going to radically affect the way that you approach life and the way that you view your difficulties. You see, if you see him as risen and alive and reigning at the right hand of the Father in that place of honor, glory, power, and might, if you see him in that place, every difficulty becomes an opportunity in your life for him to show up, for him to express himself. 
I love what Pastor Chuck Swindoll said when he says, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. So good. And that becomes even more true when you realize that Jesus is in that place of power at the right hand of God to empower us through his Holy Spirit. That's why Paul would write in several of his epistles that the very power that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave is available to us on a daily basis. So it's the place of honor, the right hand. It's the place of power. It's also the place of provision. Don't miss this. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now listen. The Holy Spirit is the seal of promise in our hearts of God's presence in our lives. But think about this. It was only when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, it was then that the Holy Spirit was made available to empower our lives. It's exactly what Peter would say in his first sermon in in Acts chapter 2. He says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is what he's telling us, that Jesus being raised and the Holy Spirit being given, those two are connected. Jesus being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father at his rightful place in glory and the sending, the giving of the Holy Spirit to us, those two things are connected. That the Holy Spirit is made available to us as the helper and are in power because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So it's the place of honor, the place of power, the place of provision. One last thing, it's the place of intercession. Again, we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, And also there are many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. The priesthood of the earthly priests, it it ended when they died. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, he's risen, he's alive, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is such a great phrase. He is able to save to the uttermost. That means completely save. To save completely. Why? Because he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. Here's what this means. It means that Jesus doesn't doesn't save you and then say, okay, good luck. I hope you make it to the end. No. He's with you. He's for you. And he's constantly praying for you. To save to the uttermost, to save completely, means that he's going to be by your side every step of the way. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? That's Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is risen at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Isn't that amazing to think about? 
that Jesus right now is praying for you? He's praying for you. He's standing with you. And part of his work as our, as, as our intercessor is also that he is our advocate. John said this, if anyone sins, and we all do, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, that word means the satisfaction for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. When he says that Jesus is our advocate, that means he's our defense attorney. So here's what this looks like. Satan comes before God and he says, did you see what Rob did today? Man, he really blew it. He accuses us. But Jesus, our defense attorney, stands up and he says, you know what? What he just said about Rob is absolutely true. He's completely guilty. And you want to look at him and go, that's your defense? But then he says, but then he says, but I died on the cross and I paid the price for that sin. It's already paid for. It's already covered. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Rob, he confessed that. So it's forgiven and it's forgotten. It's been put away. He's declared righteous in my eyes. And so the case gets thrown out of court against us. Amen? Amen. And again, that's why Paul would go on to say there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, this is so glorious. So glorious. It's so important for us to recognize that this is where Jesus is. The right hand of the Father. In that place of power, provision, that place of glory and honor, that place where he's interceding for us. And in the midst of the difficulties of life, we need to get vertical. We need to look up. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. For this beautiful picture that we see of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I pray that this would just be etched into our hearts and our minds all this week. That no matter what life throws at us, that we would be able to look up, to know, to take comfort in that we are not alone that we're not left to our own strength. We praise you, God. We thank you, Lord.